Comments made on the Ceratoc Podcast Network are those of the individuals and do not represent Ceratoc Corporation, its staff, management, board of directors, or third-party resellers. Hey everybody, this is Bill. Welcome to this week's episode of the uh, Real World Fitness Podcast. Got a really cool guest this week, Kelly Sturette. We had his wife, Juliet, on a few weeks ago, and now he gets to uh, contribute his uh, viewpoint of uh, some of the stuff that's going on with uh, San Francisco CrossFit and their business and the Mobility Wad website, and uh, we'll hear his side of things. Before we get to that, I, uh, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I want to dedicate this show this week uh, to my father's memory. Today would be his, uh, I think, 105th birthday, and I really miss him, and I want to dedicate this show to him. Okay, enough of that. Now let's get to best-selling, New York Times best-selling author. That's impressive. Uh, founder of San Francisco's uh, CrossFit and the uh, MobilityWide website and a whole bunch of other things. My guest today, Kelly Sturette. Hello, Kelly. I'm here. Thanks oh. so much, man. <laughs> I was like, I'm loving what I was hearing, you know. I was feeling a little misty about my own past father and then uh, – you know, I was like, man, that, that guy Kelly sounds really cool. And then I was like, oh, it's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Thanks, good start. <laughs> I got to I gotta tell you, too, and you're, the way you set it up, you know, with Juliet, you're like, you know, now we're going to hear the other side. Like, I'm like, this is like a serial podcast. It's like, you know, and uh, you know, you've, heard, you've heard from the Juliet, and now you're going to hear from the man. So uh, now, now the rest of the story. Exactly. I'm, you know, Paul Harvey made a fortune on that, and maybe I can too someday. So good day. <laughs> exactly. All right, Kelly. Um, we're going to kind of just jump around. Let's get into your background a little bit. You are a physical therapist, and um, you've got an awesome sports background, just like your wife. You want to kind of give us your background, how you got started in training and fitness and sports and all that? Well, you know, I was never interested in training. Because I was a user, you know, as a user on the national team, you know, like everyone else, we, you know, you, let me set this up. Um, recently, we had some genetic testing done by this amazing company called Athletogen. And uh, Dr. Jeremy Koenig is a PhD physicist, uh, uh, geneticist. He was a national level sprinter. And he was like, you know, he's like, they, the, he was feeling like people were looking at genetics, but weren't looking at the actual genetics of of your physicality, your physical being, right? Not, are you going to get cancer or not, you know, are you, are you prone to Alzheimer's, but you know, like what, what's actionable? And well, it turns out when you look at my genetic profile, there are these markers that have our drive to move, genetic drive to move, including motivation to move, physical motivation. And uh, I'm like 96th percentile, you know, need to move and, and be actionable and out there in the world. And I think that really sets up the story of, my whole life, I become obsessed about something, you know, and ski racing is an early age and then paddling and football. And then, you know, I get into this and I met Juliet through all of the whitewater. But, you know, people forget that 15 years ago, there, it was a, you know, vastly different place. YouTube didn't exist. You know, finding information was really, really hard. And you, uh, you know, you, you either, you know, studied with masters and figured it out. You know, you ran into someone like Bill Starr, you know, or you were lucky enough to, to train with Mike Berger in his garage or something. Then, 
or you know you found like the the weird book by Pavel in some corner of the bookstore and you, you know you, and you you start dabbling and it was really really difficult to get information but we were we were obsessed you know i think i first read the zone ages ago you know like in 97 something like that and 98 and uh you know and was like holy crap maybe i should stop eating as much carbohydrate you know that sort of thing but you would bump into these things and, you know, we would s- seek it out as much as we could. Like I, I was like, you know, I asked one time, my girlfriend's parents got me a medicine ball for Christmas. It was like a 24 pound medicine ball or something. Cause I, you know, that's what I, I really wanted for Christmas. And this is, man, I was, cool. you know, t- 23 and I found this book by Donald Chu um, of Stanford who really was one of the first books on plyometrics. But the book was like a a cartoon book with like stick figures throwing the ball. No rep schemes, no sets, no theory, no bracing sequence, no sophistication, just like stick figures tossing the ball in different positions, right? And one of my friends, my one of my friends on the national team with me, uh, we spent like 45 minutes one day throwing this 24-pound medicine ball around. And we were like, this is amazing, right? And then we were crippled and we didn't paddle for a week because we couldn't touch our abs. <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't breathe. You know, and like that literally, that, is the way that it used to be. You know, it used to feel like you were like, this is great. Oh my God, we, we're, we're dead. We've, di- we've killed ourselves and uh, maybe we'll back off a little bit. And so with all of that tinkering in the background, you know, I went to physical therapy school and uh, was always interested in sort of the interface between, you know, mechanics and technique. And I really viewed physical therapy th- school through that lens. You know, when I was 12, maybe I was at like a a big ski racing camp that was done in Germany or it was in Austria by the reigning world cup champion and the diagrams of the, the turn and the foot position. And so I've, I've been really having, I've had a lot of very technical discussions and technical thinking about movement from a very early age. And I was always involved in very technical sports. It wasn't the sports I was, was involved in, you know, like we mountain bike raced, but it wasn't for the fitness. It was because it was technical and we ski raced and it was very technical and, and fitness was a side effect of that. So it's, in, it's interesting that here comes the internet, here comes all of a sudden, you know, I run into to Greg Glassman's early thinking and I was just blown away at the fact that, you know, I didn't have a background in gymnastics. I didn't have a background in powerlifting. You know, I knew that, you know, before I had found CrossFit, I had found a guy named Dan John. And that led me to like practice overhead squatting in my 20, like I was at a gigantic globo gym, you know, with my wife and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do Turkish get-ups in the middle of the, you know, on the floor. And people thinking that I had fallen and were somehow being crushed by the barbell, that sort of thing, you know. And I, I remember the first time I overhead squatted 135, I thought I was, I just was like, I don't know where my body goes, you know. And um, so I, I sought out this Olympic lifting coach named Jim Schmitz. And I would drive, and I couldn't find Olympic lifting shoes, and I would drive an hour and a half to go to his club every other week, and that's all I could afford. And, and you know, it was really this, it was a real dark age. So, you know, fast forward to all of a sudden where we're seeing, we open a gym, um, I'm in physio school, and we start to practice a lot. And we're seeing, teaching complex movement skills to a lot of people, you know, just over a long period of time. And, you know, the we estimate what... 140,000 athlete hours at our gym since we've been open, you know, and this year, this month actually is our 10 year anniversary of officially having a dedicated teaching space, but we've actually been coaching people officially for 12 years now. And that's that's just a lot, that's a lot of pattern recognition. We've just seen a lot of people. So tying it all together, you can see that, you know, it's literally young coaches ask, they're like, Hey, what should we read? We're like, well, 
you can read all of this, but unless you're coaching lots and lots and lots and lots of people, there's no substitution for that repetition. You just need to go practice a lot. The reading is all well and good, but I mean, it's all hands-on. You know, one of, one of Dan John's biggest things to become a better coach, volunteer, spend a lot of time coaching people. Yeah. You, and that's you, you exactly what you're saying. You learn from doing it. You know, it was a different place, you know, 10 years ago. I remember I, you know, I was a young physical therapy student and I, I uh, had a question about the role of the adductors in the squat and I just picked up the phone and I called Mark Rapato's gym and he answered the phone. And we talked, he was very nice, he gave me, I really tried to respect his time, but he gave me 10 minutes talking about what he thought were the role of the adductors in the squad. And I remember just thinking, holy shit, like these masters are all around us and are accessible if you're respectful. And I was lucky enough to kind of know Mike Bergner tangentially, you know, through some other friends. And I had a chance to come down and work for him in the, the early iterations of his course and I flew myself down. My wife, I was in grad school. My wife was just finished law school. We were so broke. But I would fly myself down, sleep on someone's couch, and work for Mike Bergner for three days for the pleasure of being in the same room as Mike Bergner. And I did that four or five times where you know I had a chance to assist and listen to a master teaching people how to do that. And, and I would try to help out in any way I could. But I think that that, that hustle and concept of you know internship is really sometimes lost because people are so sophisticated now you know you can you know you're like well i'm an ito portal you know supple leopard pavel guy you know and like you're seeing that people are are so inundated with really really interesting information now that sometimes the practice gets lost the journeyman experience is lost a little bit because the playing field is so much higher and you know, when, when I, this is a good example. When I started, when I went to my level one CrossFit course, you know, and this was 11 years ago, you know, we did Fight Gone Bad, and out of 100 people there, one person broke 300 as a score. And if you've ever done that workout, it's just an, it's a simple aerobic workout, but like today, I could, I could have the flu and get 300. You know what I mean? I could, I could do it all with one arm, I could row with one arm. I could have the flu and I could still get 300. And now we expect 350 is our score for like our varsity girls rowing, you know. And, and what, what happened is that the, the whole landscape has changed, you know, and p everyone is squatting now. And if you go to a Perform Better Summit, everyone is squatting, everyone is hip hinging, you know. And the masters, you know, the people who've been holding the door open for us for a long time, like Greg Cook and some of these guys, you know, Greg Glassman, Greg Cook, you know, they have really made the case that, it's time to, you know, this is the language of, of human fluence, of, of, of physical movement. Now we're seeing that that has become a lot more ubiquitous and widespread. Now we can have a, start asking a second set of conversations. But to your point, you have to coach a lot. You do, because you can read, that's the flaw with all 90% of the personal training certifications. Read the book, take the course online. You know, when I started doing, because I do an online Three days a week, I do an online exercise class on a, a blind community chat website. And when I started doing it two years ago, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I don't know how to coach these people that are not in the same room, that I can't put my hands on them, that I don't know how to correct them. And now it's like I can do it in my sleep. 
now I know how to cue them even without looking at them and I can guess what they're doing wrong. And it's, it's the, nothing is, what's the, what's the old line? There's nothing, no substitute for experience. But I want to jump back to the workout you mentioned, because I have no idea what it is. Could you explain that uh, fight gone wrong thing? Yeah. You know, what this workout is, is basically there are just three five-minute intervals of like a minute of rowing, a minute of you know pressing, a minute of, of some squatting, a minute of moving up and down off a box. It's just very high aerobic effort. So you kind of go from station to station, classic interval training, take a minute off. And then you just can score the points and you can see how people decay over time. And, you know, it's a really nice snapshot of your aerobic fitness. And, uh, okay. and you know, you, and, th- and that's all it is. And so uh, literally, you know, it's, it's interval training in a really little simple format. It, if you've been exposed to high intensity exercise, you'll do okay. And if you haven't, you will get crushed. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding now is that, you know, the world of training everyone is working hard. Like I really, and the good examples, you can go to soul cycle and die on one of those exercise bikes. You know what I mean? Like, like the, the, the genie is out of the bottle is that, you know, we're seeing fewer and fewer people just, you know, get on the exercise treadmill, ubiquitous, insert whatever machine it is and spend 70% of your heart rate for two hours. No one's doing that anymore. I mean, like the interval work intensity pieces out. And we're really seeing that I don't think in the exercise community, it's not a conversation about if you're doing it anymore. It's a con- that really that has changed. It's a conversation about how well you're moving. Is your movement practice complete? Let's talk about sleep and stress. We've just been able to evolve the conversation, which is great because just working harder, that time has sailed. I think that partially goes along with what we were talking about before we started about people being so busy and having less time. People have learned to become much more efficient in what they do and doing that super intensity kind of stuff just does take less time than like you said just plodding along on the treadmill at 70 percent and blah 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 you know you spend two hours in the gym and you do nothing or you do a high intensity 30 to 40 minute workout you're totally destroyed and you're ready to go on well what's interesting one of the trends we're seeing right now is that some of the things that a lot of the master coaches of 10 years ago that they were railing against is that we really did hold up aerobic fitness, monostructural steady state aerobic fitness is the thing that we all worshipped. You know, that was the generally mm-hmm. in the community, you know. And what we were seeing is that people were not, they couldn't do a pull-up, they couldn't, they couldn't deadlift, they couldn't front squat, you know, 135, just big, big holes in physical preparation in terms of my Tour de France guys, they don't need to squat heavy, but they need to squat. And guess what? They all squat. You know, they all squat now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what we saw was people were very poorly skilled, didn't, couldn't perform multiple pull-up grips, couldn't do basic static holds on rings, you know, just didn't have the language of a forward somersault or a handstand, just big holes. And then everyone wasn't very strong. You know, the Olympic lifters were like, are you kidding me? You know, and the power lifters were like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you can't deadlift 400 pounds as a man. Something's wrong with you. I mean, like, that is a simple, easy goal to attain. I'm not saying that you don't have to work for it, but, like, every man on the planet should be able to lift 400 pounds. And one of the things now what we're seeing is that that competency has changed, that we're seeing a lot of people be able to scale up, are very strong, very skilled, but now going back to the aerobic well. 
and realizing that, hey, I can't just hit 20-minute brutal Metcons, metabolic conditioning pieces, and expect that to be enough. You know, that, that allows me to respect my time, but every once in a while, I'm going to need to make sure that I'm putting more time in the aerobic bank. And what we, we have seen is that people have gotten more skilled. And, and once again, you're seeing the conversation evolve, which is fantastic. Interesting. Well, if, what do they say? If things don't evolve, they die. So, Well, and people are very sophisticated. I mean, hooray, hooray for people. You know, we really feel like, and the, the, the central tenet or our, our mission is that if we give people better information, they will do the right thing. I mean, really, it's true. For the most part, it's true, but I think there's still a problem. It's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because there is so much information on the internet that you get people that either get information overload or they jump from program to program and never really get deeply into whatever it is they're trying to do because they, they want to do this and now they want to do that. And then, but I saw this and so-and-so suggests that. And I think it's an almost, almost dangerous. It's wonderful that there's so much information, but you still need the hands on a person like you or like some of your instructors that can go, okay, cut out all of this, focus on this. What is your goal? Focus on this. Cause when you leave the internet in the hands of some people, they're going to be on a different program every week and get nowhere. <laughs> I think you really do come up at the heart of a, an important concept is that who is your coach? You know, at some point, like you, you should be able to have a, you should have some kettlebells at home and a pull-up rack. And if you're really sophisticated, you know, you can have a barbell. You don't even need a rack. Just take it from the ground. So you should be able to work out at home. But at what point did you think you not stop needing an instructor? You know, you, you have a coach in almost every aspect of your life. At what point did you not, not need a coach? And I think following a coach is really why Pilates has stuck around for a long time because it's a, a very personal taught environment. Yoga is the same thing. You follow a teacher in yoga. You know, there's an instructor who, you know, gets to know you and programs to the specific problems. And that should be no different than your local Olympic lifting club. You know, and uh, I think this is this says it really all is that, you know, in, in Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi walks in to fix the sink and Danya-san is trying to learn karate from a book. And, you know, and Mr. Miyagi kind of sneers at him like, oh, learn karate from a book. You like he's like, you ass. Like, there's no way you can learn karate from a book, you know, and you have to be in a community. You really should have training partners that that can be a feedback. You can you can have amateur coaches as part of the conversation. But. To your point, you know, if you're you know, lo- trapped in a room with the internet, you're going, your head is going to explode. You don't have enough time. <laughs> That's pretty much true. And nobody is so great that they don't need a coach. I mean, every coach that I know has people they consult. Oh, I think that you're right. I mean, the, there was a New York Times article a long time ago about the myth of like the lone genius. And, you know, and they basically deconstructed the fact that these lone geniuses – that you know, people that we'd held up as you know as, as solo icons of of intellectual curiosity really always had someone else, a partner or two, that were part of that creative process. And you know, a coach or a training partner absolutely is part of that experience. And I don't think people realize the conversations that go on between coaches. Because at some point, we're always like, well, you know, who is feeding the coach? We always ask that. You know, coaches need coaches is kind of an old maxim. But, 
you know, the coaching looks different because it looks a lot more like collaboration. And, and it, at some point, a lot of coaches stop being students and they stop thinking and evolving or experimenting or practicing. And, you know, one of the things that we feel strongly about is that if you're a coach or a physical therapist, people need to know that you train and that you are, you have a physical practice. And a lot of times coaches don't want to show their physical practice the athletes around because they're afraid that they'll be judged or, you know, their movement, movement patterns are incomplete. But, you know, you have to be a user yourself to be able to be able to talk to other users. And that means you're going to need some feedback and some coaching and, and that's okay. You know, that, that's what it means to continue to advance your experience and understanding as a coach. Well, that's, that's something that people, again, you're talking about how the world has changed and how all things have changed because it used to be, you you know the fat out of shape coach could be the coach and Not now enough. like you're saying the coach has to demonstrate that he actually has these skills maybe not at the level of his athlete but he has to at least have the skills well all of the you know, let me let me give you an example um Baylor is having a pretty amazing football year right and uh i think so yeah they're pretty up there but uh, their strength and conditioning coach who's head who's kind of director of sports performance is a tremendous athlete himself and you know and he's probably not the strongest kid in the weight room but he competes he practices you know he, he pays attention to nutrition and and so he really sets this example of hey I, I practice and my practice looks different than your practice but it's not an accident that those kids are in such an exceptional team and everyone buys in because everyone is training that that's a great example of the fact that the coach has to have a practice. And, and at some point, let's be honest, you are going to get your butt crushed by your athletes. Thank goodness, because you're either working with brilliant athletes, but you don't, you don't have to be the best. And I think that's you know, what ends up happening is you, you do let your ego drop. And as, I'll be totally frank, as soon as you start working with lots of really amazing athletes, your ego is so crushed on the regular that you get over it. I mean, I am always the weakest, slowest, fattest, most out of shape person in the room always. And I, I like to think I'm a pretty fit, pretty strong guy, but I'll tell you that all you have mm -hmm. to do is, is hang out with the monsters that I know. And I just know so many mutants that I'm, I'm used to just being the, you know, the broken fat guy in the, in the corner. You know I mean? That's me. And so, um, <laughs> it's and that, all relative, but that's right. It is relative. But you know, the, the idea though, is that you get over that and you just continue to practice and evolve. And it really does help you to empathize with the experience of your athletes are having. If you aren't ever sore or know what it's like to get under a five by five and then have to go play later, you, you really are going to make different coaching decisions. You're going to do a disservice to your athletes. You have to have a physical practice yourself. You, you cannot be, and I, I think we're seeing it. I mean, even in, you know, the local high school teams, you know, some of the coaches I know are, you know, train really, really hard and can outrun their kids on the conditioning drills, you know, and, uh, you know, that, that, that 300, 400 pound football coach guy, that's like, that's a myth that's starting to go away. I mean, Sean Payton is an extraordinary athlete. And, uh, you know, that guy, he trains like a maniac and it's because he understands that, that the whole culture around him changes. It's uh, I guess you'd call it leading by example. You could, or you can say, if you're a human being, you better have a physical practice. And if your job is to create physical monsters, then you better be integrated on that front. Yeah, there's no question about that. I want to kind of do a, uh, a little jump and let's talk about the book. New York Times bestseller. That's impressive sounding. What possessed you to write the book? 
uh, ready to be something obnoxious, which one? The uh, <laughs> um, so, I'm sorry, the supple leopard. Yeah, the the the. Do we have more than one New York Times bestseller? We, we do, we do. But it's. Uh, I apologize. I didn't do my research. It's all, it's all right. I'm not. I'm not trying to be an ass. At, <laughs> at some point, what I realized was we had uh, a unique worldview about looking at how to categorize movement, how to prioritize movement, how to think differently about the complex positions and skills that we were seeing, and that was, you know, secondary to seeing lots and lots and lots of athletes at our gym, and then and then getting to work in more sports than I think anyone else has the privilege to work in. I, I really get to see everyone's dirty laundry. And if I had one superpower, I had to sort of, you know, put a pin in my, my best skill, it's pattern recognition, that I have always seen patterns faster and earlier than some of my friends. And I started to recognize basic patterns and shapes and, and, and similarities. And, you know, because I was hanging out with gymnasts and hanging out with Olympic lifters and powerlifters and runners, and I was able to sort of leapfrog ahead and understand. So what we, what we realized was, hey, we had a way of prioritizing and categorizing movement and seeing breaks in movement so that we could help people see the reasons why they were going slower and the reasons why they were losing force and potentially the reasons why they were causing dysfunction or decreased function. And then the other aspect of that is that we had created a really brand new novel approach to resolving mechanical restrictions. And so when we started this thing, what we saw was in the world, the work done by Greg Cook and the functional movement screen people had done a really brilliant job of creating motor control fixes in the term of corrective exercises. So when I say motor control, I'm talking about connecting your brain and technique, right? And th those are really skill transfer exercises that were related to corrective positioning exercises. And, and those are really good. You know, so, hey, you're having a problem with this. We're going to do this drill and see if it fix it, right? Well, my training as a physio, okay. my training as a physio led me to believe, well, you know, when I started physical therapy school, no one was mobilizing tissues beyond some cursory foam rolling, honestly, or maybe roll your T-spine out a little bit on a, on a piece of, like a child's pool toy, foam noodle. And what was happening is no one was looking at the biomechanical restriction as the problem, really. You know, and not, not scale, maybe one-on-one, -on -one, but you know, no one was mobilizing hips in a way to improve hip flexion unless it was a painful joint. Like that, that just does not happen in physical therapy. And we would overpress a shoulder to clear the shoulder, but not recognize that the sh shoulder range of motion was incomplete. And so what, we, what I tried to do was create a language of home mobilizations or mobilizations that could be done by the athlete or by the coach and the athlete to be able to approximate all of the techniques and things that we were using in our physical therapy practice to resolve dysfunction. So the first half of the book is saying, hey, look, these are the principles of movement. Here are the universal principles of how the body is organized. Here's a schema for you to look at how that works based on the physiology. And you can work that into your own, your own vernacular because it's a universal application. And then if you can't get into those positions, here is the second half of the book, which is a 300 pages of how to fix it yourself or take a crack at fixing it yourself. And when we, we did that, obviously we stepped into some kind of, 
gap where there was a hole between how we were thinking about pain and dysfunction and how we were thinking about performance and movement. Because the whole time I was in physical therapy school, I had a really difficult time reconciling what I was learning with how I was trained as an athlete and how every other athlete I knew was trained. There was like just a gap. You know, you'd read the first half of the book and then there'd be like five chapters missing and then someone goes to the Olympics and you're like, what? what? You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, and so we really struggled. How did we get there? Yeah, we struggled to reconcile that. And, and we take it for granted now, you know, and if you look, I mean, my wife and I laugh about the billions and billions. I mean, mobility was not really a word that was used before we started. And now the number of mobility sites and, you know, shoulder flexibility solutions and, you know, like there's a lot of courses and a lot of people putting out information that has really, you know, with, without, you know, without recognizing that, you know, we've been, we've been beating that drum and saying, hey, look, we need to expand the definition of fitness to include positional competency. That I'm going to say it, that if you don't, can't put your arms all the way over your head, you're not fit. Does that make sense? Your movement, Absolutely. your movement is cannot be pulled out. And, uh, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you still can't work hard and win a world championship, but I will argue that you're not at full capacity and that that decreased functionality that you're expressing, you're going to compensate and give away force and give away power and give away wattage. And you may also set yourself up for tissue dysfunction. And we're currently having a conversation in the physical therapy realm about what is it we value because, you know, my wife and I started this nonprofit called Stand Up Kids, which I know she talked to you about. And yep. we, we see this epidemic of poor body mechanics, you know, where kids are slouched and heads are, you know, forward flexed and shoulders internally rotated and diaphragms don't work and pelvic floor is turned off and T-spine is rounded. I mean, just check the boxes. And, you know, some physical therapists have come at us and said, hey, look, you guys are do- you're, you're fear-mongering because what you're saying, you're, you're, there is no research that correlates postural dysfunction with pain. And, and we're like, hey, 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 we never said this was about pain. We said this is about if you sit in these positions, we know you're going to be compromised in movement. And that needs to be the conversation, not a, I wait around until I have pain because – you know, that's like waiting around until your check engine light goes on and then you add oil to the car. That is the worst way to maintain a car. Yeah, absolutely. I've got to kind of like go off on a little tangent with you because you're talking about, and you're not saying it, but it sounds like you're talking about some of the flaws in traditional physical therapy. And I recently started medicine? working with a client. I'll say medicine. Okay. All right. Well, let me just throw this scenario at you because I found this very interesting. For about the last two months, I've been working with an 86-year-old lady who fell and broke her pelvis. She went through all the PT, and uh, when she was released, her uh, her family wanted to take it a little bit further. So I started working with her. I've known this lady for a while, and actually, she's a longtime family friend. And so I kind of took it as a personal project. And I discovered that the side where the injury was, the hips, the quads, everything is very strong. The side that was uninjured is very weak. They did nothing in her therapy to work it as a unit, to balance it, to, they overcompensated. Her injured side of her hip, her pelvis, her glute, her hamstring is almost twice as strong as her quote unquote healthy side now. 
Tell me the logic there. Well, remember that people go into medicine because they really like to help people. I mean, so keep that in mind, right? That people are doing, people are never malicious, but people are a product of a system. And the system has said, is set up particularly around physical therapy to address pain and to get people functional. What does that mean for your 86-year-old friend? Well, can she get off the toilet? Can she, can she shower by herself, right? Is she able to walk up and down the right. stairs? Great. Exactly. That's, and is she out of pain? Have we treated her pain? Great. That means that we have met her functional needs. Now, it's key to understand functional. I can drive a car with a flat tire and call it functional, right? I can dislocate my shoulder and still brush my teeth. I'm not going to be really good, but functional is the wrong, wrong phrase here. And the problem is that our entire, you know, what we've said to people is, oh, you can go to the toilet and, and do your bra. You are cured, right? And, those, and what we say is right. within normal limits. And within normal limits means, hey, a person, you know, it's, it's an ish. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a quality state of, hey, we're not going to fix everything because we don't even know what we need to fix. And we don't even have guidelines as part of our training, in fact, the entire system is set up to handle pain, not to handle function, real function. I'm talking about restoring full hip range of motion or available hip extension or being able to express that in good patterning around squatting or hip hinging or the languages, the formal language of how we move through the environment. And so what you saw was that really good physical therapists had spent a lot of time making sure that that hip was healthy enough for her to get back in to her life, but did not ever fix the problem all the way, did not ever look at the whole system. And that's because they were set up not to get paid for that. And their training was not in that language. The, you can see we get, a, we get a lot of arguments with physical therapists sometimes because part of the training is physical therapists say, hey, look, if I have this person get on the bike and do some balancing on the BOSU ball, you know, that they got strong enough to become functional, right? If they did some TheraBand extra rotation exercises, their shoulders stopped hurting. So that must be the way that we should train everyone. And unfortunately, that is a whole bunch of horseshit. That is not the way that the rest of the world trains or prepares anyone for better function. And we haven't, and mostly in, in the physical therapy or chiropractic realm, we haven't even decided what the vital signs are that we need to look at. So, you know, you can put your hands up to your face and feed yourself. You must have enough shoulder range of motion, right? Versus is the human being complete? Can you do the things that a human being should be able to do? I.e., can you squat all the way down with your heels on the ground? Yes or no. I mean, that's sort of a bright line function. And if you don't, then you're either missing hip range of motion or ankle range of motion. But you can be missing hip range of motion and ankle range of motion and not have any pain and still be pretty functional. But we just haven't expanded our definitions. And until we make the case and people start asking for that or, or saying that, hey, maybe, maybe the acute medical setting is not the place for that, right? That we need to put more of this onto the local coach, the local trainer, that's the place where we, this needs to happen. And to your point, what you saw was that you had a person who was radically incomplete, who was functional enough, but you know the, the medical system wasn't set up. You know, her reimbursement was set up to treat that hip, and they were not going to get paid unless they treated that hip. 
So we're going to have to create a, an alternative universe that makes the other one obsolete. And that's where we are right now. Okay. We, we play a lot of cleanup at our gym. We, we see a lot of people who failed out of uh, chronic pain programs, who've had post-surgical results that uh, leave people vastly, vastly compromised. We, we clean up a lot of bullshit, you know, that stuff that should have been caught. And this is, I'm not talking about the average person. I'm talking about like the NFL. Someone has a non-contact ACL. They're the, they're the best defensive player on the team. They had incomplete care. They come in, their knee is stuck bent 15 degrees. I mean, if your knee is stuck bent, then you can't straighten your leg. We have a big problem. And, you know, a lot of times it's because we're not using the rehab in the language of this is what we expect people to be able to do. You only see it in the, in the language of rehab. You never, ever complete the conversation. And that conversation is, is this leg capable of doing what it needs to be capable of? No, it's not. Okay. So we've covered where it is and where it should be and what you guys are doing. You guys are obviously serving a huge purpose. So it sounds to me like you're dealing with a tremendous amount of high-level athletes in your facility, not by any means just the general public. We get our hands on a lot of people and we see a lot behind, we see behind the curtain of national teams, Olympic teams, elite military units, high schools, colleges. We, we really do get to see a lot. And we teach moms and dads and grandparents and kids and average people too. And, you know, frankly, it was, we feel like that is part of the conversation. In fact, we think you're not a really good coach until you can coach everyone. You know, if you can only teach the elite how to be more elite and you can't then translate that language down to six-year-olds, you have a problem and a hole in your coaching program. And frankly, it was Mike Berger who taught me that. You know, the, the Olympic lifting coach, Mike Berger, you know, he had Olympians in his family and was an Olympic lifting coach at the national level. And yet he taught freshmen and sophomores how to Olympic lift for decades. And because he was always able to get to the principles, that, that level of thinking allowed him to then rebuild the, the, the highest level of, of thinking. It's one of the reasons that Chinese are doing such a phenomenal job is they teach kids how to move well, and they just continue to scale that right up. That makes perfect sense. Part of the problem in the world, though, is there are a lot of specialists. So what you're saying is people need to have a more full spectrum of coaching skills rather than specializing in whatever it may be. Well, I think you could specialize in whatever it may be, but you should be able to handle any cohort that comes in. Um, it's not an accident that we have a bunch of people in our gym who also teach kids gymnastics because those guys can teach a complex skill to, you know, someone who's eight. Boy, they, they really have it dialed for someone who's, you know, 28. I mean, it's really, it's remarkable how competent many of our coaches are at coaching you know, juniors. It really, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, and I have to be honest, you know, some of that is the most interesting intellectual work because you don't have the luxury, it's like coaching someone with an injury or coaching someone, you know, in another language, you don't necessarily have the ability to leverage 20 years of experience. So you, you better, your coaching better be direct and, and it better be efficient. It really is much more challenging to train a beginner than somebody who's at a high level, like you're saying, because you're taking them from square one. So that, I think that's actually a higher skill. Someone who can take a total beginner 
and get them to a reasonable level probably is a more difficult task than coaching an elite athlete just based on, based on what you're saying. And I'm thinking back to when I used to train people in my gym and it's like, I'd have fun training a high level athlete. A beginner was always a challenge. That's right. I think one of the things we're getting at is what we want to do and we're starting to see is that you know we inherit people who have these beginners, we'll put them in there, who have no, no formal movement training. So how is it you got to your 20s or even 30s and you didn't have any formal movement training at all? Either in dance, in gymnastics, in karate, in jiu-jitsu, in Olympic lifting, because you know even in yoga or Pilates, I think what's happening is that you know people are exercising, and if you if you go on TV right now and you watch the TV show Sweat Inc., it's a great example. There are all these people who only thing they evaluate was how many calories did I burn, how high did my heart rate get, not did I have a skilled movement practice, right? Because getting your heart rate up is certainly okay. is certainly a component to important component to a physical practice. Right. And if all you did was lift weights, you you're going to, you know, I know your heart rate gets up high sometimes, but you're going to have some holes in your, in your metabolic fitness. And that's okay. You can specialize and do what you want to do, but you just, you can't say you have a complete practice. Right. And you're going to, you know, but even then a lot of my friends who are world champions, man, they, they do a lot of sled towing and they do a lot of, you know, pushing with the prowler and stuff, you know, but what I'll, what I'll tell you is that until we expand our definition of what's important, to the human, not just did I, am I in a puddle of my own sweat and blood and puke, you know, then we're going to still have this ridiculous conversation where people are, are incomplete because they don't have, they don't have the language skills, you know, and if, you know, no wonder, uh, you know, exercise bike class is so popular. You don't have to be skilled. Put your hands here, put your feet here, sit on this thing, do whatever you want you know, just be a rat in a cage. And it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's very, very, very crushingly difficult. You know, the burn is horrible, comma, there's no skill in that. So we're surprised then when, when people go running and they get injured or they lift something up, they lift a pillow up, their kids up and they have shoulder pain or back pain, you know, because we just haven't trained people. So what we're realizing now is that we have to have these interventions earlier and earlier and earlier. Now, you said something before, and it kind of made me go off into a, a thought that I wanted to pursue, where you were saying about no formal movement training when people are young. And I think, and correct me if you disagree with this, but because of the way the world has changed and the fact that kids are far more sedentary when you know people that are my age, 50s, 60s, so on, it was go out and play. Maybe there wasn't formal movement training, but you ran, you jumped, you wrestled with your friends, you climbed, you moved. You didn't need it to be formally taught to you at that point. Now it seems like there's a greater need for that because kids don't go out and just play. I think that that's, that's a, certainly a part of it. We're seeing less fluency or less uh, diversity in kids' background movement skills and practice, you know, and I, and I'm not the first person, I mean, Erwan LaCour of MoveNet, Gray Cook, Cook has said a long time, he's like, look, you know, if you are engaged in primal activities, that means you're lifting logs and rocks and, you know, and you're balancing, and you're running and you're climbing and, and pulling and swimming, you know, you're going to develop all the skills that we would develop and value as being useful, Chris McDougall's language of fitness, you know, of being useful 
know, you can acquire those skills in the wild, but you can still, you still need some formality to it. So the indigenous runners from born to run, not only did they run in shoes that make it very difficult to heel strike and ran like a, run like a douchebag, but they also had formal cultural experiences. They had a game that the kids would play that forced them to take small steps, right? That was a basic, you know, so they, they, what we're still realizing is we still need training on top of that, but that's a compounding variable. And so, for example, I lived in Germany as a kid and I picked up German pretty quickly because I just went out and played with a bunch of German kids when I was, you know, in the second grade. I just went out and started riding my bike around with a bunch of German kids and pretty soon I had functional German, right? But in order to be able to talk about language and art and politics, I'm probably going to need some more formal training. And that language that I picked up quickly is the language of climbing in trees and, and jumping over creeks. And that's important, as important as also getting some formal movement training. You know, we teach our kids how to read and write and do math and eat and sleep. And we do not teach them how to run or squat or pick things up or do handstands. We just hope it works out for them. And then we've done that because we haven't valued the genetic tolerance that we have built into the system appropriately. You know, we feel like 98% of the injuries that we see, honestly, we should expect to see those until we change something. But those 98% is a preventable disease. If you run like a duck and you stand like a duck, and cut like a duck, you know, you're going to have plantar fasciitis. That is a root cause of plantar fasciitis and that bunion and that torn ACL and that Achilles tendinopathy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's easier to just, if you, someone said, hey, we run with our feet straight. And then that's what we practice in skill. We just don't, we just don't see it that way. We don't see physical competency, not the ability to work, but the ability to move well as a pillar of health and intellectual fitness that it is. That's interesting, but it's true. We, we place a far more emphasis, a far more value on other things. And you're right. These are things that are supposed to naturally occur and that's why some people are quote unquote natural athletes and some aren't because no one's taught anyone it's it's you either accidentally do it right or you don't <laughs> that's right and the kids who accidentally do it right well it turns out they end up getting a lot more formal coaching because they've done it right and someone's noticed it and so you know it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yep. you know once you realize yeah how competent people are like like that i basically look at everyone as you know as having extraordinary uh, latent strength, extraordinary latent skills. They just haven't developed those skills. And all you have to do is run a gym for a while and then watch the transformation. So we had a we had a guy come into our gym and he had never deadlifted before. And he's been with us now maybe seven or eight years. That guy just deadlifted 600 pounds. You know, like he, he's, he has a couple kids. He's the president of a gigantic business and he works like a dog. And He's just been at it for seven or eight years. He still trains hard. He breathes hard, but he loves deadlifting. He just deadlifted 600. And what I'm telling you is that like, if you saw that guy on the street, you wouldn't be like, that guy could deadlift 600. But all he's been doing is just kind of chipping away at it. And that's a freakish deadlift. I don't care who you are. Like deadlifting six is a big number. And um, it's just a side for him. You know, and that's my point is that I think people have no idea physically what they're capable of, how long they could run or how long they can walk. We just don't set the parameters that each of us has really incredible physical capabilities. So when something like a movie like Unbroken comes out where this, you know, Zamperini who is, you know, who's running a four minute mile basically, 
and then goes on and becomes tortured and can suffer, you know, we don't connect the dots that, well, he's been suffering his whole life running. So no wonder he can suffer on this side and look what he can take. You know, we just, we don't see that those things are connected. You know, we are capable of a lot more in our lives, a lot more empathy, a lot more compassion and a lot more physicality. People don't extend themselves. They focus on their, what they have to do or excelling in what they want and, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to what is it they say that we use 10% of our brain to probably use 10, 20% of our physical potential as well. That's true. You know, my wife is a good example. You know, Juliet has, um, she's annoying. She literally has a six pack. She's a 42 year old woman, mother of two CEO with a six pack. And um, you have to slap her. Uh, it's disgusting. And at school, we look at the cohort of parents around us and you know, that these people are struggling for having a job, having a meaningful relationship with their spouse, making sure they spend time with their kids, right? And then, oh boy, you know, what gets left without any sort of, without keeping an eye on it is that everyone becomes highly out of shape, becomes grossly overweight. And, um, you know, and, and it's not, it, it's, you know, people always ask a lot of the women, Ask Juliet, like, what's going on? How do you do that? How do you look so fabulous? You know, is there an exercise I can do to get those abs? And Juliet's like, yeah, just train, you know, five or six days a week for the last 20 years. Let me know how it goes for you. (laughs) It's not magical. It's just consistency, and which is what we want people to do. It's saying that, you know, we tend to want to be heroic in our efforts, but we just need to be consistent in our efforts. And one of the things that we're trying to tell people and something that CrossFit has done a really great job of is just, hey, in 20 or 30 minutes, we know that we can – start to make some progress. You're not going to make the world-class progress, but you don't have to be world-class progress because given enough time, you will be able to do 50 pull-ups in an hour, you know, and you'll be able to run some 400s and, you know, your body will start to come around. And that's the, that's the key about the consistent practice, you know, and, and um, my friend, Matt Vincent, who's a great, he's a world champion Highland Games athlete. Someone asked him about the key to getting strong. He said, well, Hey, it's simple. Just squat heavy once a week for 10 years and let me know how that goes for you. That's it. Squat once a week for 10 years. You know, how, how, you know, 3,000 plus squat sessions. You know, I guarantee you, you're going to learn something about squatting and you're going to get stronger. That's all it really is. It's, it's showing up, being consistent, goes back to the guy with the 600 pound deadlift. The word you used, he's just been chipping away at it. And you can chip away. That's all it is. You don't need to. And, And you can, you know, this is what's amazing. In your garage now, you know, if you have a jump rope, you know, and a mat and a couple kettlebells, I guarantee you I can get you ridiculously fit or fit enough. Absolutely. So you can get, I can keep you alive at least until you get back to the gym, until you get back to your coach. And that's what we want to recognize, you know, is that, hey, look, at home, it doesn't have to be the completest practice. It just has to be a practice. There was a time when, you know, we had two young kids and I was traveling and we were, you know, San Francisco CrossFit was in its, you know, its earlier, you know, it's, it was in its teens. Infancy. Right. Well, I would say infancy, but I'd say teens. And, you know, I, I would just be cooked and I wouldn't have trained. You know, I'd saw, you know, 10 hours of patience and, um, you know, I got up at four in the morning and we had this, we had this workout. It was 10, 10, 10, 10 at 10, which is like, I would do 10 burpees, 10 pull-ups, 10 thrusters. And like, at, you know, for 10 minutes at 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't. I trust me. Okay. There, that was the magic number. There was nothing great going on except that I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to cultivate a physical practice. I'm going to control what I can control. 
know, my wife and I are lucky enough that we walk our kids to school because we get up early to make that happen, get our kids up early to make that happen. And, you know, because we recognize that once the day starts, man, it is really hard to get that session in. And we own a gym. So what happens if you don't even own a gym? You're toast. We have to show people a way of saying, hey, look, here's what training looks like. And oh, oh, by the way, taking care of your tissues is part of that training. Keeping an eye on your mechanics is part of a physical practice. Well, that's all definitely true in what you said for sure. I think actually sometimes when you own a gym, it's a disadvantage because you're around it so much. You may just the last thing you want to do is train. If I didn't, when I had my gym, if I didn't walk in, turn on the lights, turn on the music, and go right to my workout, I just knew it wasn't going to happen later. Yeah, it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. We, we recommend for all our coach friends, that, you know, and they all do. They all, have a, they all have a gym at home. Otherwise, you're, dead. Mm-hmm. you're, just, you're toast. Yeah, and if you, if you can't do that and you have to have the commercial situation, you got to do it first thing. Otherwise, the world's going to get in the way, and after you've trained five clients, ten clients, or done a few classes and done everything else, last thing you're going to want to do is your own workout. Yeah, so it really does mean you mean it means you may need to turn the TV off and be in bed a half hour earlier so that you can get up a half hour earlier. You really you're going to have to do it. I, I agree, and I think that's the problem is that we don't want to, you know, we'll make we'll compromise everything else except saying, hey, these are the things. We really strongly believe that everyone's going to be 110 now. You know, you really are going to live a long time, but we're not living in with that long game in our minds. And if you're training fiercely and you're deadlifting like a maniac around in your back, you are not playing the long game. You're going to need this back when you're 70 and 80. And if you already have three herniated discs at age 22, I guarantee you, you're either going to get religion or your life is going to not look so great when you're 60 or 40. Yeah, that wheelchair is not going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> or, you know, hey, I'd really like to pick up my kids, but I'm afraid of my back. And so we yeah. shame on us for not seeing it earlier, but now I think we have the tools and the consciousness, and so we can make those changes. And, and it's happening. It's happening in the military. It's happening with kids at school. It's ha- you know, teachers are, you know, the number of teaching coaches and instructors at our school is incredible. You know, we have these amazing teachers mm-hmm. who teach yoga and they teach yoga to the kids and they teach them how to breathe and that just needs to become part of the language and and the, it will if we continue to just follow the path where we're real people are waking up i think it's a long slow process and i think the people that have the hardest time are the people in you're like 40-ish right kelly i'm 42 okay our age range I'm 56, you're 42. The 40s to 50s to 60s who have, you know, been set in the the patterns that for so long, I think are the hardest to change. It's easy to change in young people, and I see a lot of older people who are very very conscious of well, I I recently started taking tai chi and the instructor I'm working with has a class of 80 to 85-year-old ladies that he teaches five days a week. Badass. That's so badass. Oh, it's, it's cool. I walked in because we were doing a private lesson. And he was still working with the class. And I started talking with the ladies. And after they left, I asked him, how old are they on the average? He said, well, one's 82, one's 86. How often they come in? Oh, I see them four to six days a week. Most of them have been here for the last two years. Because Tai Chi is a movement practice. You know, it's, people have been sol- trying to solve the problems of the human condition for as long as we've been people. That's a true statement. And, you know, tai- once you understand that and you, you start to look at Tai Chi that way, you know, what you're realizing, you're like, oh, maybe I'm not moving Chi around my body. Maybe I'm taking the joint through its full range of motion. I'm practicing balance. 
I'm connecting from shape to shape. And all of a sudden you really like, wow, this is a fantastic practice. Can I go to the Olympics and do Tai Chi? Probably not. Can Tai Chi be part of a, an Olympic practice? Absolutely it can be. Because sometimes, you know, the other part of this is that it can't just be about revving up. You've got to learn how to deal with stress and you've got to learn how to breathe and you've got to learn how to turn off at night without an alcoholic drink, without an Ambien. I mean, you, you're going to have to learn how to manage the, the stressor loads of being human. And more weight on the bar is the same load on your system as, you know, five hours of sleep. This is true. And there's, there's another point right there, sleep. Most people, especially, I don't know what it is in other countries, but I know, I don't know too many people that get more than five or six hours sleep. Right. <laughs> and that's definitely not a good thing. Well, there's no study that supports that like less than seven is basically you're going to live very well. You know, we know that if you get less than six hours of sleep, you're probably pre-diabetic for the next 24 to 48 hours. So it doesn't matter who you are. You just can't cheat your physiology. You just can't, you know, yeah. you're designed to sleep and uh, you can get away with it for a while. You know, people, we, let, we use this example sometimes, but people always, you know, sometimes throw at me, they're like, well, Bill Clinton used to sleep four hours, you know? And I was like, well, Bill Clinton died of a heart attack. And then we, we resurrected him. He actually died. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think when you're like, oh yeah, I never thought about it that way. You know, you just, you can't do it. And what I, you certainly can't do is the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Well, you know, if you're burning it in the middle too, and your candle is thin, you're yeah. gonna, you're, it's, it's, it's going to go out. So you've got to play the long game. You just can't cheat. You, you've got to restore. You can't just keep taking and taking. And it, it's eventually the body crashes. Well, it's part of the, this physical practice that we're talking about. So what can I control? Look, go ahead and just be a business person. Fly to the East Coast. Fly to China. Fly to Korea. You're going to be trashed. So what should you do then? You know, do you hammer yourself more? Well, what can you control? Well, I'm going to try to eat you know, six to eight fists of vegetables. You know, I'm going to try to get the, the cleanest sleep I can get. You know, I'm going to, hey, maybe I should minimize alcohol now because my system is really trashed. Maybe I can work on my tissues and go for a walk. I mean, there, there is something you can do, you know, as part of the physical practice. And it doesn't just have to be, because what we see is that people are like, well, I didn't exercise today, so hand me that cookie and, and that beer. That's not the solution. No, that's just adding to the problem. I get the distinct feeling we could kind of like continue this conversation for a couple hours and it's it's kind of rambling. We're getting a lot of good information out, but it's kind of rambling. I'm going to have a hard time doing highlights on this. So <laughs> I'd like to kind of find a way we can kind of uh, wrap this up in the next, I don't know, however long it takes you to wrap it up. So where would you like to go with this? Well, you know, here's here's what we want to tell people is that the the burden of care is on you. And... That means that if you're waiting around for some master or physical therapist or physician to parachute into your life, and it's never going to happen, and that's not how the system works. But what you can do is carve out a, a practice, you know, and really ask yourself, what is my physical practice? You know, and that can be as simple as getting a foam roller or a lacrosse ball and starting to treat your, treat your soft tissue. But the idea here is you need to think about doing something seven days a week for your body, period, every day. That can just be, it can start by walking, start by putting a weight vest on and go for a hike. You can start by, you know, carrying a couple kettlebells around your block. You can do, it doesn't matter what it looks like because once, you know, and this is really the conversation that I think drives people crazy is that once you're moving, now we can have the next conversation, which is how well are you moving? Can we move differently? Can we start loading that? You know, but the first and foremost, the conversation is, has to begin with, show me wh what you're doing on a consistent basis. You know, three days a week, is not good enough. 
I need seven days a week of thinking of yourself as a physical animal. This carriage that you're in is going to go the distance, so you better start paying attention. And then all of those things suddenly make sense. Well, hey, I'm going to walk around my, my house barefoot. You know, that, that makes a big difference in terms of, you know, the quality of your, your, your foot tissue and mechanics of your feet. And when I watch TV, I'm going to you know, work on my middle splits. It's just there, there are things like that, I think, that people are realizing that w- we realize that we don't need to put one more thing into, on top of very busy families and mm-hmm. busy people. What we need to do is just improve the efficacy of people's current lives. And that's easy to do. You know, we, we like to do all the soft tissue work before we go to bed when you're at home because you can be rolling around with your kids and hanging out. You know, that's not, you know, doing all your soft tissue work at the gym is not a good use of your gym time. But we know that right before you go to bed, if you roll around on the ball, that helps you fall asleep faster. Things like that. That makes perfect sense. Now, I just one thing I want to mention in passing is because you mentioned the stand-up kids thing about two, three weeks ago. I, I'm up early, early, and I've always got the news on at like 3.30, 4 a.m., and there was a story about standing desks, and I immediately thought of you guys. It's like, oh, this is awesome. And I immediately stopped. Are they going to have one of you guys on it? And it was, wasn't kids. It was in an office environment, but it, uh, it made me happy to see that on, the nation, on CBS National News. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you saw it, but it, uh, it could have been, but uh, Juliet was on the CBS National News a couple weeks ago, and then uh, also on the Today Show, and then also on, uh, on NBC. And uh, what we're seeing is that we're seeing the trickle down effect that people are getting their consciousness and we're, we're starting to change. And that's, that's part of that idea. Hey, what is it that a human being is supposed to do? What, what's my physiology supposed to do? I'm supposed to be in movement. It doesn't have to be heroic movement, but I'm supposed to be moving. And if I sit down, is that, is that what it was designed to do? No, I'm not. You know, if I look at your spine standing and I look at your spine sitting, show me that it's the same spine. And what I can say is it's not, it's not the structures that support it don't work. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you can say, well, there's that language again of, well, hey, you know, do I recognize that this stable spine that I'm running with and the same spine I deadlift with, that should be the spine I'm standing with and sitting with, the same organized, stable, neutral spine. And then I can suddenly start to evaluate the quality of my environment based on having some rudimentary understanding of what my body is supposed to do. And then it's really easy to make the right decision or a different decision. Right. Well, I'm glad that you guys are getting that exposure. I just saw the thing on CBS and I didn't hear Kelly's voice and I wouldn't know what she looked like to see her on it. And But maybe she was on it. So I'm glad you guys are getting some exposure, some more mainstream. So it's definitely, it's definitely, the time is right. Yeah, it, it seems like it because there's there is a need and there's the information is there and people seem more receptive now than they ever have been. That's true. Big true. Because what I think what people are realizing that what's happening is not working. You know, and Jamie Oliver is a great example of that, right? We're seeing malnourished kids who are obese. It's crazy. So we can we can change it. We can change it. It has it can just change one one little piece at a time. You know, we'll miss some kids in the process, but we'll catch most of the kids at the end of the process. And that's what we have to look at it. Okay, we've been talking with Kelly Starrett for the last hour plus, and uh, you've been listening to Real World Fitness with your host, Bill. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week with another awesome interview for you. Have a fantastic week. Real World Fitness is a production of the Talk Podcast Network in cooperation with CosiabaFitness.com. All questions, comments, and feedback should be submitted to resources at Serotalk.com. If you're listening on a mobile device, use your iBlink radio app to submit an iReport. Promotional consideration paid for by Audible.com.